0: Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds.
1: Every week, we bring you our pick-up articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing
0: in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm
1: Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show.
0: Hi Julia, it's episode 21 of The Pick List. How has your week been? It's been really good, thank you. Um,
1: I'm finally off deadline, so that's always very, very exciting. I'm, I'm right into um, another project. Um, I'm just finalising another video training course on opinion writing, uh, so that's very exciting. But um, I'm also very relieved to have got the massive writing deadline behind me as well. How have you been?
0: Yeah, good, thank you. You can reduce your caffeine intake now, which is good. <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. Just a touch. Yeah, great week, thank you. And uh, this afternoon, which has been the highlight of my week, and I'm not exaggerating, I've been out on a pig farm, uh, and it's been my second meeting uh, outside my house for um, uh, seven months now. And it was just so nice to get outside and chat about business and chat about uh, various things, from everything from African swine. Fever through to impact of Brexit. So we're uh, with a fantastic um, pig farmer. So yeah, a real treat. Uh, and I should also point out uh, because it's uh, episode twenty-one, we're halfway through season two of the pig list. And I don't know quite how that's happened.
1: No, I couldn't quite believe that. Um, I mean, it takes us back to the discussion we had last week with Sophie about planning for Christmas soon. It just it adds to my my pre-Christmas anxiety because if we're halfway through season two already. Christmas must be around the corner
0: it's terrifying it really is I've st- just to make you panic I've even started my Christmas shopping and I'm always last minute so, I do not yeah. want to hear about that Laura <laughs> uh, and we've got some amazing guests booked right up until the beginning of December already which is great uh, but the treat that we've got today and hopefully a treat for our listeners is just <laughs> me and you yes
1: it's been a while since we've had a solo episode haven't we
0: it has, and it's great because I can just chat at you even more, so you're going to have to tell me when to <laughs> shut up. So we've got three articles each this week. Absolutely. Well, I'm still in charge of editing, so, you know, if, uh, if
1: things get totally out of hand, um, we can fix it in post.
0: It's, it's, it's always my highlight of the week to listen to what you've chopped out, the, the, jo- the jokes that haven't made it. Uh, tell me uh, what your first pick is this week. So my first pick this week is
1: from The Spain. And it's an article titled, Lab Grown Meat is Scaling Like the Internet. Um, It's a piece, an opinion piece, really, by Ron Shigeta, and it originally appeared on Medium. Um, It's basically looking at the hype around lab grown meat and asking what I thought was a really interesting and important question. Is it really just hype or is there a serious growth story here? Now, the author of this piece is an investor in Memphis Meats, which makes lab grown meat, which, of course, gives you a sense of, of where he's coming from from this. This is clearly someone, spoiler alert, who thinks this is a serious great story and not just hype. But why he thinks that is quite interesting. What he does in this piece is he sort of sets the scene by saying there's been obviously a lot of coverage around lab-grown meat, we hear a lot about its potential to totally disrupt and redefine the meat market, but at the same time it also still feels like a technology that's quite far away. You know, whereas plant-based is something that, you know, is happening right now, right here, with products that are on shelves today, Lab-grown, I think, in many ways still feels like science fiction and and something that sort of um, gets a lot of attention but doesn't really feel like it's got much commercial application or viability at this stage. But, and this is the core of the argument here, the author believes there is actually a compelling case for saying this is much, much closer than it feels right now. The cost for lab-grown meat is falling fast, faster than was the case for other major technology breakthroughs, And in 2021, the cost per serving of lab-grown meat is expected to drop to under $50. Now, that is still very expensive, of course, but that's not the point. The point is that it used to be way more than that, only a few years ago. Um, And he points out we've seen sort of a similar dynamic play out in plant-based as well. When Impossible first launched, the article says, the patties cost them about $100 a pop restaurants and now you can buy a pack for $10 at retail. There are of course still lots of challenges to overcome as well for for lab-grown meat and you know he talks about the sector's reliance on foetal bovine serum for example And of course, it's also true that not all the startups that are making lots of headlines today, getting lots of noise and lots of hype, will necessarily scale up to be viable businesses in the long term. So yes, there is a degree of hype. But the piece concludes, make no mistake, animal-free, lab-grown, cultured meat is coming sooner than you think. Which I thought was just such an interesting um, perspective. And, and, and I thought it was interesting, in particular, to hear from an investor point of view, someone who's not just writing about this as an observer, but someone who clearly has put some money in um, in, in his particular view of, of the market as well. I mean, there's someone who, who you obviously you've got such a, a long background in, in the meat industry. What do you think when you read an article like that? Does uh, Do you buy into his argument about how close this is?
0: I know when you sent me what articles you were covering uh, on today's show. I thought she's picked this one for me, so yeah, I, I always think it's it's been in the middle distance lab grown meat, and as it, as as you you're right as the article says, it's maybe closer than we think, but it's always felt. Don't worry, it's cost prohibitive. It's it's a long way away. But I, I guess, it, you know, it, it does say it's coming closer and we just need to look at the tech that we use every single day, how much cheaper that is than, than when it was originally invi- invented. The three words in that article, though, I guess is still the bit that's going to be really interesting of how consumers latch onto this is the fetal bovine serum, um, as you've alluded to. And so will um, vegans or vegetarians be interested in this product because of that? We don't quite know. Um, And then will meat eaters be keen because will it have better sustainability uh, criteria? And then what will the differentiation look like in in retail in particular between a plant-based product, lab-grown product and non-lab grown product Uh, and I don't know quite what we're calling that real meat Uh, so the the and you know what fixture space is that going to take up is it going to cannibalize some of the the meat-free products or cannibalize the, the real meat so and I know I always feel like I'm a bit of a broken record on the show but it's about what the consumer messaging is and how they much they buy into it particularly as that price continues to drop what do you reckon do you think there's a clear road through and will it be on that because I I think that's where the potential is on that sustainability point yeah possibly I mean I think it's a really
1: exciting sector and in many ways I think it's more exciting than plant-based and I have a lot of interest in in plant-based I think it's a um, it's, it's a really exciting sector I'm not someone who follows a plant-based diet herself but if you write about grocery and you write about food there is a lot to enjoy in that sector in terms of fantastic stories, lots of interesting uh, companies, lots of innovation, lots of experimentation and, and sort of trying and, and failing as well. So uh, from a from a journalism point of view, and I think from a storytelling point of view, these are really interesting sectors to cover. What's so interesting about Grain? I think the technology story is exciting, but also I think it's the sense that you are not asking people to do to buy into a plant-based version of of meat but you are giving them meat and so i actually think that from a from a sort of competition point of view that it is a much bigger threat ultimately if it can scale if the product delivers um yes if it's i think sustainability plays a role in here as well but i think it's ultimately about product delivery and about people understanding and feeling comfortable with the technology. I think it's a much clearer competitive product for meat um, and, and for dairy as well than some of these plant-based products. So I think it's a sector that needs to be taken really seriously um, and I think is, is really exciting as well. How quick some of this comes to fruition, I mean, I, I have no sense. I find articles like these really interesting because they're sort of trying to kind of uh, make an argument or at least paint a picture about you know when we're starting or, or when we're likely to seek commercial viability but um you know I think that all of that remains to be seen but yeah I think I it's certainly not something that that I would dismiss I think it's got a lot of interest a lot of investment and I think it's really exciting what's your first article for us
0: can we talk about whales <laughs> that's not the My first article this week. So it's from the Retail Gazette and it says um, the headlines, grocers in Wales have discretion over ban on selling non-essential items. And it's been a a busy week in the retail press, hasn't it? And and this has been one of the uh, lead articles. And to be fair, having retail across... um, but major news outlets as well, not just our trade press. And this is all around the fact, as we know, that, that Wales are under a, a 17-day fire break to try and, and stop the spread of COVID. Um, and there's been a restriction uh, around not what's deemed as non-essential products at, at, at retail, at the supermarkets, of clothes, bedding and kettles as examples um and this is all about trying to safeguard the retailers that are non food retailers that sell some of these items including books and other things to make sure when this 17 uh, day fire breaks um over then they haven't been unfairly disadvantaged um so fashion furniture shops have all been uh, told to close um include uh, as well as leisure hospitality and tourism outlets so, um, what this has done is, and it's, it's, it's created a huge media storm and, uh, and you can't miss some of the social media photos of, you know, that, that's uh, particularly alcohol and, and that the, uh, There's been a lot of chat about how vodka is seen as an essential product um, and and other things aren't. And in particular, Tesco have been dragged into this. um, There was an exchange on social media about some period products and they were deemed to be uh, non-essential in a a social media exchange. Um, And obviously they've said, no, sorry, we've read the rules incorrectly. They are are essential. So um, it's now there's a a, a petition forcing... um, a rethink on this and 60,000 people have signed. And Mark Drakeford, the First Minister of Wales, um, has said this meeting on Monday, they're going to reconsider. But basically, retailers have got discretion. And I read this and I have to admit, I feel really sorry for retailers at the moment, particularly as we talk about regularly on this show, what a tough job it is to be on the front line of, of grocery retail at the moment. And they're having to decide at the checkout on occasions what is deemed as essential and not essential and one person's essential is very different from somebody else's what's been your thoughts of this coverage over the the last week and i guess that the challenge around this and safeguarding these stores that have had to close and i'll stop rambling in a minute the other thing that, um, that i think um hasn't been covered enough is the fact that people will just pivot to online you know if i'm looking at my if i'm jeff Bezos looking at my amazon figures for wheels over the next 17 days you'd be thinking i'm not going to battle about uh, um, trying to get through to a um buy a, a frying pan in, in asda i'm just going to buy it in amazon because that's not being stopped what it just feels like a mess what are your thoughts I mean exactly that I
1: think it's an absolute mess and as you say yeah of course I, I think people who are comfortable buying online are able to buy online are going to be buying online and um, I suppose in, in many cases it's about people who don't have that as an option and what position are we putting them in um, you know I'll be potentially making it really awkward for, for people to buy products that, that they do need that are essential um, to them I think the, the period product stuff was sort of I think, just a stupid mistake. I don't think that was necessarily representative of of, of how these rules were being interpreted. I think someone made a mistake, and it's been fixed. And it's obviously, you know, embarrassing to have made the the mistake in the first place. I'm assuming whoever thought this wasn't essential was a man. Um, But (laughs) I wouldn't want to cast aspersions. But I think it's, I think that the, you know, the issue, once again, is that it's perfectly easy for, for politicians to say, oh, we give retailers discretion, but someone has to apply that discretion. And as you say, working in retail in this uh, in this climate, in this situation is stressful enough. You're just passing the buck on to store staff and you are putting them in situations where they have to make decisions on the fly. It's really difficult, even if you have guidance. And I, I saw that they've um, issued some further guidance with some a, a sort of list of, of items that would be deemed essential. But still, you're sort of navigating 17 items or however, you know, however long that list is. That's really difficult. People are going to make mistakes. Inevitably, they're going to get in trouble. They're going to have someone, you know, shout at them in store or on social media. It just feels deeply unfair when um, there there should be, you know, clearer rules to begin with. I think doing something like a circuit breaker or fire break is, is difficult and it's tough. But there are ways for politicians to make that a little bit easier on business. And I think part of that is have, setting really clear rules and not expecting um, store staff to um, referee those those rules on the fly. But also, if you're so worried about other retailers and other businesses being disadvantaged by supermarkets selling these items, there are mechanisms for you to supply, you know, to, to give support to those businesses. It's not just about stopping someone from buying some clothing in a Tesco store. If you're worried about other clothing retailers or whoever else is in your high street, I think there are other better, more targeted mechanisms than having people rope off the clothing section in a supermarket. Um, Yeah, I... It was a nightmare!
0: and the, the other thing that I thought is um, when you've seen so much on social media for example the greeting card section being uh, cellophaned off and you can't buy a birthday card, if I was the likes of Moon Pig or Funky Pigeon or one of these online players in that space I'd be piling a huge amount of cash into my SEO for Wales at this point in time and I think this is our opportunity and as you say there's some people that, that, that don't or can't buy online but for those that have maybe been at that tipping point thought it's always been easy to pick up at, uh, at the supermarket then th- they'll be setting up accounts maybe for some of these players and ultimately the supermarkets will lose out in the long term as well so yeah conclusion being it's a bit of a mess
1: what's your second story this week my second pick this week is from the new york times and it's an article titled "Are kid fluences making our kids fat Um, The kidfluencers in this particular context are kids with incredibly successful YouTube channels where they review and play games and toys and things like that. It's a really, really popular genre. Lots of kids enjoy watching those videos. But there's a new report that suggests that these YouTube stars um, also end up promoting lots of unhealthy food and drink at the same time. The researchers behind this report found loads of instances where videos that were supposed to be about a game or a new toy also heavily featured junk food or junk drink. Um, In some cases, the products featured so heavily that the videos were, in essence, thinly veiled ads, the researcher said, but in others, it was a bit more of a grey area where the content, you know, wasn't perhaps about the food and drink, but it still featured heavily in the video, so it still got screen time. Now, the difficulty here is um, it's just such a new to an extent still area and a really unregulated area um, as well you know YouTube says it's really clear about not allowing any paid promotional content on YouTube Kids which is the platform they have specifically um, designed to be safe for children and they say they also have really clear guidelines for advertisers that restrict certain content including certain food and drink content but the researchers of this report argue that whatever the guidelines are essentially there's still lots of promoting happening or at least that there's lots of screen time being given to products that wouldn't get that kind of screen time on other platforms particularly on on tv Um, and what they did for this particular report is they basically identified five of the top kid influencers on youtube analysed 418 of their most popular videos, and they found that food or drink were featured in those videos 271 times, and 90% of them, they say, were unhealthy branded items. One of the researchers is quoted in this article and she says, the way these branded products are integrated in everyday life in these videos is pretty creative and unbelievable. It's a stealthy and powerful way of getting these unhealthy products in front of kids' eyeballs. The big point of contention here is that, you know, as as I alluded to, we do, of course, have really strict rules on, on TV. Um, but the lines aren't always as clear on some of these newer platforms. The regular regulatory framework hasn't always caught up. Um, and even where guidelines exist, they're perhaps not always enforced consistently. There's also such a huge challenge, I think, for brands, because reaching younger audiences and reaching the next generation, of course, is also understandably a priority for them. How do you do that ethically? How do you do that responsibly? When, you know, the media landscape is fragmenting, the idea that you can just run really big sort of family TV campaigns, well, that is not viable in many cases anymore you know, you have to figure out as a brand, I think, how you show up on some of these newer platforms. Um, but yeah, as I said, how do you do that? How do you do that responsibly um, in a way that the regulators are ultimately going to be comfortable with, in a way that parents are going to be comfortable with, and in a way that doesn't end up being uh, damaging to to your brand reputation as well? What did you think of... Uh, kid influences i didn't i had never even heard of of that term but of course there's an influence effect for everything and everyone so of course there are kid
0: influences <laughs> no as well. i i felt like an old biddy i hadn't heard of that term either and i love the article and some of the, the the articles well worth looking at because some of the graphics in the article as well are really impactful and and unsurprisingly super bright which would you know appeal to to a definitely a, a younger audience I think it's really tough because, you know, you think about what's happened over the last eight months in particular and uh, a lot of my mates with uh, kids have had to use tech more and more to keep their children occupied when they've been working from home and childcare has not been an option. So um, I I think, you know, there'll be more more and more of these channels growing, but I think the pressure will grow on, as, as the article alludes to, on YouTube to regulate it more as and and as you say catch up
1: i really i think it's about brands showing some leadership as well and and i think there are brands that understand that you know they have enormous power with their advertising dollars and the way they and and pounds and the way they spend that and you know in it, the, there are many brands that have taken a, a public stand on on the kinds of social networks that they're willing to spend their money on and that have put pressure on these platforms I think this is yet another area where you you know I I think the good brands are going to show real leadership and say yeah. just because this is an unregulated platform or a, a reasonably unregulated area we know that's what happens you know you have new platforms um gaining traction super super quickly there's there's not ever really going to be a scenario where the regulatory framework is going to be anticipating that it's always playing catch up that's the nature of of regulation I think it's about you know, brands showing where their ethics are and you know being incredibly mindful about how they show up on these platforms. And I do think the answer is that they don't show up at all because I do also, I, I think that's totally unworkable and I think it's understandable to say, look, if, if we have this fragmented media landscape as a brand, you're going to be looking at where you can capture that next generation of shoppers. Of course you are. But, yeah, I think there are ways to to do that ethically. And, you know, if you are working with influencers really of any sort, pushing for really clear disclosure standards as well. You know, I think this is something that is happening not just with with this particular example, but I think across the entire influencer sphere. There's still so much content that isn't, I think, obvious enough. There's a there's a paid relationship there. But if you're the one paying, I think it's within your gift to put some pressure on the people you're partnering with to say, you know, we're expecting you to stick to the following standards of disclosure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think brands need to just um, show up and, and figure out what responsible behavior looks like in there, because I just don't think they're going to end up being bailed out by a regulatory framework that suddenly figures out how to anticipate all of these, you know, changes in in, in platforms. What's your next article?
0: My next article is from The Grocer and it's Inside Asda's Sustainable Store Trial in Middleton. Um, and ASDA have now teamed up with brands to reduce plastic packaging but how will it deliver on its greener ASDA price strap line and it's an article by Ian Quinn um, really fascinating the reason I picked this is because as you know I love and good nosy around retail so I haven't been to the Middleton store yet but I've uh, been uh, watching with interest some of the uh, pics on social media over the last week of people that have been so it's uh, <laughs> again how sad my life is it's on my, on my bucket list so the, the article. <laughs> Maybe we could go on a day out, never say <laughs> never <laughs> once, we're, once we're out of whatever tea we're in So um, what the article does is, unsurprisingly, it sets out um, uh, the journey and the, and the launch of the store And interestingly, it's been, it's been somewhat of a passion project by Roger Burnley And he, uh, the CEO, and he originally planned this to uh, launch in May Um, but it's only launched this month, which to be honest, I don't think it's that bad considering (laughs) COVID. So the fact it's uh, only a few months behind, um, not bad at all. Um, And the driver behind the the, the whole launch of this store is is some targets they set back in 2018. uh, And that was a a 15% cut in weight uh, of plastic packaging by 2021. And it's also, as to now have a new commitment added this week to remove 3 billion pieces of plastic from own brand products by 2025. What the store is, it's a mainly loose product and it's a conjunction of... um, uh, work with 20 brands including Unilever, Kellogg's and Heinz uh, and they've had uh, almost a year planning um, this store and it's a single flagship but the hope they're going to roll it out to more and basically it allows you to refill um, reusable uh, containers and it has 15 huge banks of refill stations containing 30 household staples each um, and it's been really interesting because this has been in the planning pre-COVID, and now it's it's been launched in COVID. How people feel about the fact that you know you're going around and, and touching dispensers and all of that sort of thing, and you're taking reusable packaging in, and um, uh, which you know other, other people uh, could have touched um, the machines with their reusable packaging. And it, there's a really nice little quote in here from Roger saying. Uh, for many people during uh, COVID, plastic reduction became a first-world problem. And during the initial lockdown, he said I was getting two thousand emails a day, and none of them were about plastic. So, and I know we've we've touched on this previously, um, in the show about you know how plastic did come very much back in vogue uh, at the beginning of COVID. But he then goes on to say in the article, the environmental agenda for our customer is back with a vengeance, despite the economic backdrop um and the article talks really nicely about how the, the trial is going to be you know the success of it's going to be led by consumers and their feedback and how closely uh, consumers are going to be measured and tracked in terms of this trial store and how actually this can be rolled out to other categories that don't lend themselves very well to refillable dispens- uh, dispensers so some of the things that are included as i say with uh, some of the big uh, fmcg brands um uh, Uh, as pre-mentioned but also there's game-changing recycling facilities um, and I quite like I think this is really fascinating particularly for cosmetic containers toothbrush toothpaste tubes and all that sort of stuff that doesn't naturally recycle at home and then the article goes on to say uh, a year ago a report by um, Greenpeace slammed supermarkets including Asda and it's been really interesting that Greenpeace, and I'm sure you've clocked it as well. Is tra- is appearing a lot more in trade press about you know the lobbying that they're doing behind the scenes and also out in the open public uh, uh, in their reports to try and push the dial for uh, supermarkets to do things differently. What were your thoughts on the store, or any, is you excited to go with me as I am to, to go with you? I mean, I would obviously
1: go with you on a on a picklist day out <laughs> where we have a look at the store. I think this is, yeah, I, th- I think this is pretty exciting. I mean, there are two things that, that stood out to me. I think it's really positive that this is now happening. Um, you know, as you say, there were loads of trials that were put on ice when COVID first hit for completely understandable reasons. And that great quote that you um that that you read out about, you know, 2,000 emails, not one of them about plastic. Of course, there were different different priorities. I think retailers had dif- had different priorities. Consumers had different priorities. But I think we do obviously need to think about what's next as well. And things like um, plastic, uh, re- the need to reduce packaging, the need to reuse packaging. Well, none of that has has gone away, even if it's been overshadowed for a while. So I, I think it's just it's a positive signal to say this is we kind of we, we feel confident to now launch this trial and we feel confident to push ahead with an initiative uh, like that. So I took that as a really positive signal. I also, I do like what they say about, um, you know, pushing the affordability angle on this as well. And I know of, you know, Ian quotes, um, I think it's an unnamed supplier, and they're talking about some understandable supplier unease the minute you have a retailer um, saying, we want this new thing and we don't want consumers to be paying for it as a supplier going, oh, guess who is going to be paying for it then? But um, but I still think that... Um, I think I think that's an important signal, and and you know is going to make some of these uh, these trials I think viable ultimately. That you are giving consumers a choice, and it feels like um, they're not being punished for making a more sustainable um, or more environmentally friendly choice. So again, I think that's that's interesting, and it reminded me of the commitment that Tesco made recently around increasing their plant-based range, where, again, they talked about that affordability angle. And it just feels like, you know, obviously we, we are, you know, it's a looming recession. <laughs> the economy isn't isn't looking too great. I, I think we're starting to see more retailers really talk about affordability in connection with some of these initiatives. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that stood out um, to me as well. Obviously, it'd be interesting to see what what responses and um, whether this is something that can be scaled up at this stage. I thought it was also interesting to read um, Adam Leyland's, the gross editor's uh, leader column on this. Um, he, um, I think, rightly pointed out that it's fantastic to have these big brand names in there. Um, but there are also some really innovative smaller brands that are doing fantastic work on sustainability and on on more sustainable packaging it'd be great to see major supermarkets really make a point of going to these suppliers and giving them a platform with some of these um, these sort of trial concepts as well
0: yeah what's your final pick this week
1: So my final pick this week is from Glossy and it's titled Twitch Emerges as Rising Platform for Beauty Brands. So we're returning to this idea of uh, talking about emerging platforms, platforms I am not on. And as as you said, make me feel like my own grandmother. Um, But it's really fascinating to see Um, just how many of these new platforms are out there and also the different opportunities that exist for brands, beauty brands in this case, but I think this has applications for wider FMCG as well. Um, The particular trend or the platform that we're focusing on here is is the rise of Twitch. And Twitch is a streaming platform, a live streaming platform, where people primarily stream themselves playing videos and uh, video games and watch other people play video games and interact with them. But it's also increasingly used for other content, including beauty and lifestyle content. And it's hugely popular, and as a result, it's becoming a more interesting platform for brands. So brands are um, seeking opportunities to sponsor Twitch events, things like TwitchCon, but they're also striking partnerships with influencers and streamers. And what i thought was interesting here was the way they talked about what makes twitch an appealing and effective platform from a branding point of view is that the audience is very very engaged the the platform is built for engagement and for interaction and he has a style and a tone i suppose that's a bit more relaxed than some other social media platforms. You know, we hear a lot about the backlash against, I think, in particular, Instagram's more staged influencer aesthetic, the idea that you know you're filtering everything and it has to be perfect, and you're sort of showcasing the sort of perfect version of your life. And platforms such as Twitch can be a little bit more laid back and they can allow um, influencers to talk to their audiences about brands, about products they like in a way that just perhaps feels a little bit more relaxed and, and, and a bit more um, authentic. So inevitably, you kind of think, well, what are the opportunities here for for grocery brands or FMCG brands? And It certainly feels like that whole gaming piece, you know, not necessarily just on Twitch, but just esports gaming in general is something is an area that a lot of FMCG brands are now investing in quite heavily. And I think they're really waking up to the potential around gaming. So I'm sure we'll see them look at a platform like, like Twitch as well. Um, but at the same time, you could really see that you know the, the opportunities there, perhaps also for some direct-to-consumer brands, you know, those sorts of DTC brands that have already really embraced Instagram, they could also see this sort of informal conversational laid-back style that exists on Twitch and see a real opportunity to partner with influencers um, you know, who can then bring some of these smaller brands to their audiences as well. Did the article make you feel as ancient as it did me and uh, could you see this as something that, that is going to be of, of relevance for, for FMCG
0: brands increasingly? Uh, yes and yes so <laughs> I felt like a really old biddy and I loved reading this article because I've been hearing more and more about Twitch and I always just pigeonhole it that yeah it's for, for gamers and it's very much niche for that but as you say that authenticity that it brings for brands and explaining cosmetics through to food products um, that, that Instagram doesn't and it's not staged and it's more natural that that consumers really like and I suppose it really drives back to where's your audience and what they're doing and the importance of really understanding that where your target market is and that segmentation of you know where are they spending their time um, and making sure you've got uh, if you've got a young uh, consumer then yeah making sure you've got a young marketing team as well that aren't t- taking traditional routes and not knowing there's the, there's uh millions and millions of people sat on twitch every night the, the other thing that i thought was really interesting the article and again this is an, an absolute must read is that the um comment that the the author leaves twitch running uh overnight uh, and it made me think of the movie Ready Player One that you're just you know you're embedded into that separate world and it's you know it's part of your life and that left, left, left it running in their in their bedroom just thought wow that you know th- this is the exposure that gets to your life it is huge so yeah Um, I need to probably research a bit more about how it works without getting too sucked into it Um, but I I think it just shows you again how pacey our world is and that you know talking about for some Instagram and TikTok isn't relevant anymore.
1: What's your final article?
0: Uh, My final article this week is um, an article uh, via Presswire, uh, and this is the top five global trends that the food industry will experience in 2021, Um, and this is fuelled from a report uh, generated by ADM, the global leader in nutrition, Um, and I was really interested in what they were uh, pitching as the the top five things, Um, and, and you know, Based on their report. So, firstly, a more proactive approach to nourishing the body and the mind. Um, And there's some comments around this that consumers are gravitating towards food and beverages with bright colours. Um, that will incite citrus flavours and naturally occurring vitamin C and I was really interested by this because again on one of our previous shows we've spoken um, about how the orange market has just gone bananas, excuse the pun, uh, in terms of a boost in sales and people crying out for more vitamin C products. So I I was interested by that. Sustainability taking centre stage, no surprise there and the report saying over two-thirds of people uh, want to, to to buy products that have a positive impact on the environment through their everyday actions um, and I, I'm always interested in reports like this because they're saying that but do they actually do it to, you know within the supermarket and particularly you know um, dependent on how much uh, cash they've got to spend the third article really struck me, and it's around gut health and it merging as a gateway to wellness. And I don't know about you, but I'm seeing more and more, particularly about gut health and how gut health links to um, sort of cognitive functions and making sure that you're looking after yourself in that way. And how digestive issues are becoming more and more um, raised up the agenda, and how the food industry obviously has a huge role to play there. The fourth article, which we've already touched on on today's show, is plant-based boom, continues to expand. Um, and it talks a little bit in the article about dairy alternative categories. Uh, and we know there's been a, a huge um, dairy alternatives uh, for some time. But saying that's going to expand even more so into yogurts, ice cream, butter, spreads and creamers, um, obviously particularly in the US market and how the dairy, ais- dairy aisle is going to be standout um, for animal free products and then finally and and again no surprise but I, I think it's something that the food industry can continue to drive forward transparency builds consumer trust and this fact that Um, consumers are going to want to know more and more where their food comes from Um, and it says in fact 26% of global customers look for the country of origin on food and drink labels which uh, when you think transparency that number's not that high (laughs) I know some organisations and countries would like that to be one of the number one drivers and and it's still a bit further down the list how much of that five things did you agree with that you think is going to be a 2021 mover and shaker and how much of it is uh, a bit of PR puff oh god it's quite difficult to say I mean
1: who who wants to be predicting anything at the moment um I know we're in sort of food trends prediction season but um it feels like it's a little bit um you know well we'll see how how COVID plays out so yeah I certainly wouldn't want to be in the business of having to make predictions at the moment it's a sort of I thought it was an okay list um, I think it's really difficult, I think, when you're writing um, about these sort of food trends um, or if you're in the business of putting together press releases um, you know, or, or reports coming up with these food trends, because in a way you are either going to end up um, vastly overplaying fairly niche trends in order to be able to say something new, or you're going to say things that are probably long-term multi-year trends that are more robust and and more substantial trends but also make you sound a little bit boring and like you're saying things that everyone already knows I'd say this falls into the second category I don't think there's anything I disagree with but it's also one of those things where you're like okay fine I mean we've heard this um I think these are quite long-running themes and there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with um with with highlighting them but you know gut health it no one's going to fall off their chair and amazement that we're that gut health is, is is a trend yes it is and it has been for some time and and i'm sure it's going to continue being an important trend into next year especially because of that link with immunity as well and of course as you say immunity is a Um, I'm sure is going to be a a really really important topic in 2021. Transparency again, you know, these are all perfectly good things to be focusing on. and, and And I think they are undoubtedly important. Are we suddenly in 2021 going to have the year of transparency? I didn't see anything in that particular report or the press release that made me think that there was a step change here. I think it's just one of those ongoing trends that has been true for some time. And I'm I'm sure is going to continue being true in in 2021. So I thought it was a perfectly solid list of of trends, but nothing that made me think this was um, really going to be different for for 2021. Um, But yeah, as I said, I think that's the nature of these these forecasts to an extent. You're either overplaying the novelty or you're just saying things that everyone already knows because food and buying behaviour doesn't change that dramatically year on year. But then how on earth are you going to write about your new trend? You need to kind of, you know, pull out things that, that do feel a little bit new.
0: That's my highlight of chatting to you because you're always giving me a brilliant PR lesson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not sure that is a brilliant PR lesson. because I,
0: I, I would have said, oh, I don't think I would have covered
1: this because it sounds like it's um it, it's a lot of the same stuff. But that doesn't make it wrong. It just makes yeah. it difficult to get coverage for, you know. This is why when you look at... Um, I think Whole Foods Market does these trend predictions really, really brilliantly. Um, And it's much easier for them to do that to an extent because they are, they have a brand that lends itself to the sort of really foodie, slightly niche um, trends. But I think they're also very good at giving the trends that they see good names. It's never just we're gonna see more about mushrooms. They're gonna either pull out a super exciting, very specific mushroom, or they're gonna come up with a really fun way that kind of encapsulates that trend. Um, I think they are the people to, to look out for that. I think Waitrose actually does it, does it really well as well, but Whole Foods Market, I think, always
0: delivers on that. Well, it's been a lovely chat, and is it, it's different just you and I, and we're back with a guest next week, aren't we? We are indeed, yes. Lovely to chat to you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show,
1: please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist.
0: Thanks again for listening. See you next time.